Welcome to Life on the Illinois Prairie. Your host is Wendy Fleming Dexter, and after 30 years living in small town Illinois, she has stories to tell. Past cornfields and factories, into the heart of Amish country. There's more here than what meets the eye, far beyond what you think you know. So buckle up and stay tuned. This is Life on the Illinois Prairie. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Life on the Illinois Prairie. I'm your host, Wendy Fleming Dexter. Joining me today is the owner of Coyote Creek Tack and Stables in Siegel, Illinois, April Walk. April, thank you so much for taking time today. I know you're a very busy lady, and I thank you for taking time to be with me today. Hi, Wendy. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, thank you for being here. Uh, could you like to share a little bit of your background? And you have such an extensive background in the equestrian business. Would you like to tell how you got started in that? I'm sure you were born into a family that loved horses, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, just uh, if you wouldn't mind just giving us some background. Sure. Well, I don't know that I was born into a family that loved horses. My mom grew up in <laughs> town, never wanted to live out in the country. And my <sighs> dad grew up on a farm. Um, grain farm, hogs and cattle. So they did have some horses. They rode a little bit as kids, but not a ton. So Mm. the way it all started, my sister and I, when we were little, we'd be driving with my parents to town and we would have neighbors that had horses out in the pasture and we'd beg and plead for them to stop along the road so that we could look at the pretty horses. So (laughs) that went on long enough that the parents finally decided that they'd get us a pony. So when I was four, we got, no, actually when I was three, we got our first pony who was a terror. Uh, His name was Red (laughs) Eagle. He was a very naughty pony. And that was our first one. (laughs) Then when I was four, we actually bought a Marin Foal from the neighbors. So that was Sugar and Wildfire. Wildfire is the one that I've actually named my indoor arena after. And um, she was so wild. She had not been handled at all. And my dad used to have to lasso her to be able to catch her to do anything with her. So, um, (laughs) yeah, started early, started competing when I was five, and um, the rest is history. (laughs) Well, you've you've won a lot of awards over the years, haven't you? Several? So, yeah, we went to our very first horse show when I was five, and my parents thought it was a one-time fun kids show that turned into (laughs) um, a bit more than they ever planned. So I showed and competed all of my childhood years and teenage years and into my 20s and 30s, and um, I've won quite a few awards. I've won... um, state champion barrel racing two years and top 10 in the state in Western pleasure and pole bending and a lot of local awards at all of the local horse shows that I went to throughout the years. The last few years, I've been doing a little bit of sort of competition. Um, I'm in the top trail horse program. And so I log all of my trail riding miles and upload them to this company. And um, I compete against people across all of the United States. And this year, um, my main horse summer was number eighth out of over 600 horses in the United States. And um, I think I as a writer, actually, that's wrong. I was number eight. 
And my horse Summer was number 13 out of over 600 other horses and riders we were competing against. So wow. it's not exactly competition because I like to trail ride anyway, but it's kind of fun to log my miles and see where I'm at compared to everybody else. Hmm. So how old were you when, you when you started the stables and your boarding facility? So it kind of happened um, bit by bit. I was 15 years old and I had a lady from yoga ask my mom and dad if they thought that I would give her five-year-old riding lessons. And so I'm like, well, I guess so. Um, sure. And so I think I charged maybe $10 a lesson back then to this little girl. And she rode one of my Western pleasure horses that I had trained and was showing. And then when I was 17, we had a new teacher that had moved to a yoga area. And he had horses out in New Mexico, if I remember right, and wanted to get him moved to the area. So he knew that I was one of the few people in school that had horses. And he asked if we would board his two horses. And again, I said, well, sure, I guess so. And so that was my first border. And then uh, once I, um, I moved to my own place when I was 20, and I started boarding more horses shortly after that, and started giving a lot more riding lessons and guided trail rides. So yeah, it just kind of happened kind of um, bit by bit. But it was something that I had always dreamed of also. Hmm. Well, you must have done it very well for it to grow the way that it has. And you've had visitors from from w way far away come through for your riding, have you not? From Australia, China, etc.? Yeah, over um, the summer times, I get probably about one-third or half of my guided trail riders are local, live within, say, an hour or two. And then the rest of them are typically traveling for the summer. Maybe they're coming to the area to visit grandparents, or maybe they're just traveling through the area looking for something to do. Um, in one season, I did have writers here from Australia, and that couple actually I'm still friends with. They send me Christmas cards and Christmas oh. presents every year and have invited oh. me to come over to visit them um, several times. We keep in touch um, on Facebook, and it's just crazy that we could become friends like that in an hour and a half ride. Um, then I have so all that same year, I also had writers from China and England and Africa and all kinds of cool places. That's amazing. And to me, you know, I'm, I've told you I'm very inexperienced. The time that um, my girlfriends and I were down there a couple of years ago and rode was probably the first time I'd been on a horse in over 30 years. And I could count, I mean, the fingers of one hand, the times I have been on a horse in my lifetime. So I think it's quite admirable to me that that, that shows your skill, that you can size up people and horses. You know, you know your horse's temperament. And so to be able to judge by looking at us, you know, knowing our skill level and knowing which horse to put on which person, because I know that, you know, from a liability standpoint, that's got to be a big, that's probably your biggest factor that you have to deal with, isn't it? Matching the right horse to the right, per, right, the right rider to the right horse. Yeah, that does definitely play a factor. Um, so most of the guided trail ride places, whether it's someplace you go on vacation or some of the other more local ones, um, 
I don't think they put a lot of thought into it. You know, the people show up, they put you on a horse and off you go. So I spend mm-hmm. quite a bit of time before every trail ride. Um, I get the rider's information, their height, their weight, their experience level. And I do spend quite a bit of time planning which horse they're going to ride, what order that the horses are going to be the happiest riding in. So they, you know, aren't having to hold the horse back the whole time. The faster horses Mm -hmm. get to walk in the front, the slower horses like to walk in the back. Um, So, yeah, I do spend a lot of time trying to make sure that everybody's ride is as good as it can possibly be. And another thing I keep my horses forever. So a lot of these horses I've had for some of them for over 20 years, I've got two here that are probably 25 and 28 now that were born here. And so all of my horses are definitely like my children. And (sighs) um, I know them very, very well. So unlike a lot of the other guided trail ride places that they buy new horses each year, And then they sell them at the end of the season. And so like, there's no possible way they can know a horse. Well, you know, when you first Mm -hmm. get one. So I've known them for years. I know their temperaments. And so I think that helps a lot, making sure people have good rides. Mm -hmm. Because horses can definitely pick up on fear from people, can't they? Fear and apprehension. They can, although... A lot of my horses are pretty well-trained, pretty relaxed and laid back and used to the routine. So they are not quite as, um, I don't know, worried about someone that is a little bit nervous. Although, like I have a few horses in particular, the different personalities of horses definitely need to be matched up with the people. Gypsy, Tough, Feather, those three horses would not be good at all for a beginner or even an experienced mm-hmm. rider that's a high-energy person. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely need to think about the energy level of the per- person as well the, and deciding which horse they're going to be on. True. So um, how close is the nearest facility that gives riding trail rides like you do? Are you the only one for quite a few miles? There's one other place that's about an hour away. Um And then beyond that, probably at least an hour and a half, two hours, there's not a lot of places in the area. It's really hard to get liability insurance for the guided trail Mm -hmm. rides. Riding lessons, not so much, but taking horses out in the open. um, Yeah, it's hard to get insurance and expensive for the trail rides. So I think that's why a lot of facilities don't do that aspect of riding. Mm -hmm. So, um, now, you offer clinics, and uh, clinics is that, and as a non horse person that I am, and I have other uh, listeners I'm sure that feel the same way, we don't really know. Is that just, um, is that just really just lessons? What it actually is a clinic? Because I know you offer those too, and every once in a while I see you posting that someone, you know, that's pretty highly rated is going to be coming to your facility, and that's got to be a big deal. Yeah, so we do several clinics each year, and It's usually a um, known horseman that's going to come to my facility, and there are usually 10 or 12 riders that bring their own horses with them. Sometimes they're local people. I've had people that come from a few hours away. And uh, Matthew Job, who is in Missouri, he comes regularly. He's been here multiple times a year for probably the last five years. A lot of my clinic riders keep coming back over and over to ride with him. Um, I've also had a few other clinicians over the years, including 
Michael Lyons, who is the son of world-famous horseman John Lyons. Uh, mm. So um, it's usually a two- or three-day clinic, and horsemanship's a big part of it, which is kind of a broad term used to describe things you're going to practice with and teach your horse, like yielding the hindquarters, um, yielding the shoulders, side passing, having a better stop, responding better to cues. And then throughout the days, um, sometimes you're going to work cattle. You're going to learn how to move them, sort them, herd them to certain areas. Um, mm -hmm. We've done some obstacle clinics. Oh, yeah, we're getting ready to schedule one right now, actually. We're getting ready to announce it this week for another Matthew Job clinic. And then we've got a guy from New York we're getting ready to schedule also who's going to be mm -hmm. here later on this summer. Well, those must be very well-received um, and very popular because, they're, again, that's probably something that a person would have to drive several hours to get to a, another facility that would offer that kind of thing, I would think. Is that correct? Yeah, so last summer, um, the Matt Job Clinic, the first one that I announced, I think it was probably in the spring, within, I think, two hours, all of the rider spots filled. So just like instantly, they filled. So it doesn't always, of course, happen that quickly. Uh, but yeah, mm -hmm. I do get riders that come from a few hours away for those clinics. So mm. it's kind of like a riding lesson, but you're also training your horse. And it's a big group lesson with someone that travels here to uh, put the clinics on. Hmm. Wow. That's uh, very interesting to somebody like me that is uh, not a horse person. I, I mean, I, I love horses. I just don't have the knowledge and I never had the financial means to have a horse because I know it's a very expensive thing. Horses are a very expensive hobby or a thing to have a passion for, aren't they? They don't come cheap. And what? And if you're going to raise them and do them right, right? Yes. Yep. It does cost a lot to keep a horse, and and the care for them, the care the care for him during this cold snap that we had. I had seen you posting different times about having to go out. You know, I I don't have any, even any dogs or any outside animals that I would have to let out and bring back in. But could you? Just let people know, let us know what is involved in trying to maintain horses during that horrible, horrible cold snap and and uh, watering them and feeding them and caring for them. What What is that like? Sure. It definitely can be a lot of extra work and there's a lot of worries of things that could go wrong during super cold spells or if we get ice mm -hmm. and, you know, lose power. So before um, it got super cold, I've got winter waterproof blankets that I put on each of the horses. And that way, you know, they can still stand outside for hours and eat their hay, eat their grain, and stay warm and dry. Um, mm -hmm. I go out several times a day to check the water to make sure that even though the, they're automatic heated waterers, they can still freeze up and freeze over. So I went out definitely more often than normal to make sure they had access to water. Uh, we did have a few of the waters freeze up, had to move some horses to different pens where the waters weren't frozen. I actually had one or one water hydrant that just yesterday came unfrozen. I was able to use it again. And that's been what, like almost a week, probably since it, we even had freezing temperatures. Mm -hmm. We also had a water line break that provides all the water to the house and to the barns. 
And it took a couple of of days before we could get someone here to dig up the water line. Come to find out it didn't bust because of the cold because the ground wasn't even frozen that deep. So it was just a fluke that it happened when it was, you know, 25 below wind chill. So during that Mm. time, we had to turn the water on for just a couple minutes at a time long enough that all the waterers could fill up and then turn it back off. And I had to do that every few hours, including getting up through the night to do that to make sure they always had access to the water. Hmm. It's a huge responsibility, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely glad I don't have any long-term borders here anymore (laughs) when we have weather like that. So I used to have between 30 and 40 horses on the farm at all, all the time, as well as oh 28 my. head of cattle that we use for the ranch sorting practices and shows. And now I only have nine horses on the farm that are all mine. So it's just so much easier when the weather is hard to just oh. take care of nine horses instead of 40 plus all the cattle. I, I, can, I can only imagine. I have. Um, I actually had a few of my stalls in the barn that somehow flooded. I think maybe the snow, when the snow and ice melted, somehow it melted into the barn through the stalls. And oh. every day last week, we scooped water out of them first. And then we put sawdust on them to soak up the little bit we couldn't scoop. Then we cleaned that out. Then the next day, we would come back in the barn and guess what? There's water standing in them again. So uh, we fought with that all of last week. And I think we finally have them as dry as they're going to be until it gets a little warmer. But uh, Mm -hmm. we don't use the inside stalls anymore since we don't have the uh, long-term borders. So it's just been a pain in the butt and a headache. It hasn't, you know, caused a problem (laughs) since the horses don't live in the barn. Right. So now when COVID, in 2020, when COVID hit, um, since your minute, you know, your trail rides and everything are outside, and, and uh, I know that we shut down in March, but um, how did that affect your business? So it affected a lot in the beginning. The trail rides don't start till the middle of May anyway, so um, those weren't affected too much right off the bat. I can't remember now, but we probably quit giving lessons for the first couple of months. And then um, we ha- put hand si- sanitizer out everywhere and everybody wore a mask. And that's how we started back doing the writing lessons. And then um, the guided trail rides were affected because there were a lot less travelers, you know, that first summer. So definitely a lot less writers for that. Uh, and my overnight travelers that do overnight boarding here, um, since a a lot of horse shows were canceled, um, a lot of campgrounds were closed. We didn't have near as many overnight travelers. And that first summer, I believe I didn't offer, we have an overnight private room, bedroom and bathroom that travelers can stay in themselves. And so I didn't offer that for quite a while in the beginning either. So there are definitely Mm -hmm. a lot of things we had to change and adjust um, to, yeah, make it all work with all the restrictions mm-hmm. we started out with. Wow. So then one thing that you have had that I think is just so utterly amazing, and you, I would think if I were in your shoes, I would be so proud to say that you have boarded the Clydesdales, the Budweiser Clydesdale horses. And I think that is just what an incredible opportunity and what a wonderful reputation you your facility must have for a a group like that 
to approach you and want to board their horses there. So could you just tell us how that all unfolded and how that how you had that created that relationship with them? Sure. So they've stayed here probably five or six times now. And the first time I got the phone call, I was just shocked and like almost wondered if somebody was playing a joke on me, you know? And so, um, yeah, that was pretty exciting, that first phone call. And so they travel with 10 horses. It's an eight horse hitch, but they travel with two spare horses in case, you know, one's filling under the weather or if one comes up lame or throws a shoe. And mm. so um, we've got to have 10 stalls ready. It's a lot more work than just a regular overnight border because the Budweiser Clydesdales are definitely pampered. They have a whole <laughs> lot of extra shavings in their stalls. So um, mm. it takes a little time to buy all the extra shavings, get them here get them all unloaded and spread out in the stalls. And then after the horses do leave, cleaning up after um, these super full stalls of shavings is a whole lot more work than, you know, a stall that just has a couple of bags. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that first time was really exciting, but I was very nervous also. Um, You can imagine how valuable these horses are and just imagining if one of them were to get hurt, you know, while they're on my property Um, So it was a little nerve wracking, but uh, (laughs) yeah, each time since then, it honestly, it was more of an honor that they decided to come back after they'd already been here once the first time, you know, they'd never been here. They didn't know my facility. It's an older Mm -hmm. farm, but it's all been, you know, redone. So it's not a real fancy place. And so um, that they came back and have repeatedly been back is definitely where I feel a lot of pride that you know, my facility is good enough for the Budweiser Clydesdales. Yeah, Yeah, that's a good thing to have on your resume for sure. Um, That'd be, I think it'd just be very impressive. So is there anything you'd like, anything you'd like to talk about that I haven't asked you about? Anything you'd like to share about your personal experiences? Feel free. Um, Let's see. I'll tell you a little about, about my travels with horses. So the last few years, I've been working on downsizing my business a little bit. Um, I've been working 80-hour weeks since I was in my early 20s, and I'm getting Mm -hmm. tired, and I'm ready to have a little bit of life outside of work. And Mm -hmm. so um, my main hobby, and probably only hobby really, is to go camping and horseback riding on my own horses. So we've been on a few big trips the last few years. In 2020, we went out to South Dakota with some friends from Missouri and stayed out there and rode for about 10 days. And then um, just this past summer, we went to Utah, which was really amazing. Um, A really long trip. Us people were exhausted by the time we got back, but our horses were still ready to go. We were gone for three weeks, including all of our traveling. And I think... (sighs) Between riding and travel days, the horses only had maybe two or three days off completely, but they mm. were, they never got tired. Of course, we spend a lot of time getting them um, in good shape for months in advance mm. of a big trip. Uh, then we've mm. been going to Florida for a couple of weeks camping each February for the last three or four years. So, yeah, mm. that's a lot of fun to see such beautiful sights and make really great memories. And we go down to Shawnee National Forest several times every year as well. Mm -hmm. 
you share some beautiful photographs. I've seen your photographs and the places that you are and the things you get to see and to see them on horseback. I mean, I just, I, I just think it's amazing. I, 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 envious. I wish I always, when I was, since I was a little girl, I wanted a horse and I just, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't meant to be. Um, I'm, I'm lucky to handle cats in a litter box. That's more in my, <laughs> it's more in my <laughs> skill set <laughs> and my bank account. <laughs> I've got several of those also. Yes, yes I sure. know you do. <laughs> you don't have to go outside. You don't have to go outside in the cold to take care of your cats. I assume yes. since they have a litter box, they're probably in the house anyway. Yes, yes, I have a I, I have a small herd of five. I four was my personal limit, but I'm up to five now. So, um, I I that, that they're they're my cheap little cheap. Well, they're not cheap, are they, Stacy? <laughs> but they're sure cheaper than the more less expensive than a horse. That's for sure. Anything else you'd like to share, April? This has just been so much fun talking with you. If I win the lottery. Speaking of cats, I'm going to get mm-hmm. one of those automatic cat litter boxes that cleans itself. You don't have one of those, do you? No, I don't, you know, but I find it very interesting. No matter what time of day you clean litter boxes, there's always a cat right beside you. As soon as you scoop out that last one, they're ready to, somebody's ready to leap in. <laughs> always. Yep, probably, that's for sure. Uh, that's, that's how it is cleaning stalls, too. As soon as, as say. soon as you get the stall clean, guess what's happening before you can even leave the stall? <laughs> I figured the say I figured that. As a matter of fact, this afternoon, that's one. We've got two of the big outside pins that we're getting ready to work on cleaning up when it was, you know, the ground was frozen so hard and it was so cold out. For about a week, we couldn't do any cleaning up outside because everything was still froze. So yeah. that's a couple of the big jobs we're doing today and tomorrow, getting those all cleaned up as best we can around the mud. <laughs> well, that's another thing that those of us who just, uh, we come in and we pay our money and we get on the horse and we take our ride and then we get in the cars and leave. And then, you know, you have all these uh, other obligations and all the behind the scenes stuff that people don't think about when they're going in for their, our little pleasure trail rides. Oh, yes. So... Yeah, sometimes people think a lesson or trail ride is expensive, but um, yeah, working working 365 days to take care of the animals definitely factors in a lot more time than most people think about. And and food and veterinary care, I can't imagine what vet, what your veterinary care must be like. I mean, we haven't even we didn't even discuss that in our notes about what how expensive that must be. So yeah, um, each spring we have a vet clinic out here and um, my veterinarian does all of the vaccinations that the horses need and we deworm them multiple times a year. The traveling horses have to get a Coggins blood test and then we have to get health papers anytime we want to cross the state lines. So those are the oh. basics of the vet type care. But for sure, you know, there's there's usually a couple emergencies throughout the year as well. You know, maybe a horse that gets a little bit of a cut or maybe colic. So there's usually several unplanned expenses each year, too, that you've got to plan for. Yeah. Oh, and then teeth floating, getting their teeth floated. Not all of them need it done every year, but we have their teeth checked each year because as hmm. their teeth are growing, they get... Um, maybe sharp points on them, or they'll get kind of like a little roller coaster look in their mouth. 
So if they don't have Hmm. an even bite that lines up, they can't properly chew their food and then they can't properly digest it. So they do get their Hmm. teeth floated fairly often also. And that's generally going to be $150 to $200 per horse. How do you spell that? Did you say floated, F-L-O-A-T-E-D or? Yep. And then also farrier care can be expensive as well. Some of them need shoes, but luckily most of mine just need their hooves trimmed on a regular basis. Um, Riding around here, there's not a lot of rocks other than, you know, the driveway. So Mm -hmm. most of mine that need shoes are the traveling horses, but we do have one or two that tend to have tender hooves that need shoes even for riding around here. Hmm. Well, is there anything else that uh, you'd like to share that we didn't uh, haven't talked about yet, other than your website and your contact information? Uh, not that I can think of. <laughs> do you uh, do you have a? Would you like to share a website or how people can reach out to you? I know you have a Facebook page, but um. sure. Yeah, the easiest way is through Facebook. Uh, my page is called Coyote Creek Tack and Stables. Or you can also email me at coyotecreektack at yahoo.com. Okay, well, if you don't have anything to offer, I, gosh, I can't believe how much I've learned. I, I know how little I know about horses, but uh, this has been very enlightening, and I hope that other people have been enlightened too. And just appreciate you taking your time, April. I know that you're very, very busy, and I, I could not do what you do. That's for sure. <laughs> Well, thanks, Wendy. It's been um, fun to be on here and talk with you. Well, thank you so much, April. Um, appreciate you being here and think that this is going to bring this episode to a close. Thank you for joining Life on the Illinois Prairie. And please, if you like Life on the Illinois Prairie, please go uh, like my Facebook page. And thank you, everybody. Please come back next week and please be kind. Thanks again, April. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Life on the Illinois Prairie, the undercurrents of our American life. If you haven't yet, go ahead and subscribe to Life on the Illinois Prairie wherever you get your podcast. Stay tuned for more stories, interviews, and updates. I'm your host, Wendy Fleming Dexter. Until next time. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.